Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Thanks to you at home for joining us this evening. Tomorrow morning, the family of Tyree Nichols, the 29-year-old who was fatally beaten by Memphis police on January 7th, will lay Nichols to rest at the Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church. Vice President Kamala Harris plans to attend, along with current Biden administration officials and former mayors Keisha Lance Bottoms and Mitch Landrieu. Reverend Al Sharpton will deliver the eulogy. And tomorrow night, we will speak with Reverend Sharpton about how the Nichols family and people across the country are grieving in this moment and what justice in this case looks like. But tonight, Sharpton, Nichols family, and their attorney, Benjamin Crump, are gathered at the historic Mason Temple in Memphis to discuss how authorities continue to respond to Nichols' death. We learned yesterday that in addition to the five former Memphis police officers who were arrested last week on a litany of charges, including second-degree murder, the Memphis Fire Department fired two medics and a lieutenant who all failed to give Nichols medical attention in the immediate aftermath as the officers who had just beaten him laughed on the sidelines. In addition to that, the Memphis Police Department confirmed yesterday that two other Memphis officers on the scene that night have been suspended since January 8th. One of those two officers is a man named Preston Hemphill. Nichols' family attorney and civil rights lawyer Ben Crump says Hemphill was the one who pulled Tyree Nichols from his car. He can be seen tasing Nichols in the body cam footage that was released on Friday. Nichols' family lawyers believe Hemphill is the one who said, I hope they stomp his expletive when Nichols ran away from them. Now, because that footage was released last week, we know at this moment that the violence it shows stands in very stark contrast to what is in the police reports that officers wrote just hours after they brutalized Tyree Nichols. An officer wrote that police pulled Nichols over because he was driving too quickly. Memphis Police Chief Davis has questioned the veracity of that claim. The police report also says Nichols was refusing a lawful detention and that he, quote, swung at one officer and literally had his hand on that officer's gun. None of that is shown in the videos. The police report, it also lists Emmett Martin, one of the five officers charged with second-degree murder. It lists him as a victim. It is unclear, at least from the videos, how that is even possible. Martin, the four other police officers charged, and Preston Hempel were all members of a special unit of the Memphis Police Department called Scorpion. It was a unit that was assembled in October of 2021 in a response to an increase in violent crime in Memphis. It was a special plainclothes unit of the police department, and it was focused on reducing violent crimes and seizing cars. Officials like the mayor and the new police chief, C.J. Davis, they praised the Scorpion unit almost immediately, as if it were sort of an overnight success. At the end of last year, Chief Davis, who's here, created the Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in Our Neighborhoods Unit, Scorpion. This unit addresses violent crimes such as homicides, aggravated assaults, robberies, and carjackings that occur throughout our city. Since its inception in this past October through three days ago, the Scorpion unit 
has had a total of 566 arrests, 390 of them for felonies. They have seized $103,000 in cash, 270 vehicles, and 253 weapons. Officials say the Memphis Police Department uses crime data to determine which neighborhoods to deploy the city's four Scorpion teams. But activists say special units like Scorpion, they tend to target low-income communities, conducting mass pullovers in those neighborhoods. Those units have proliferated in cities across the country as a kind of tough-on-crime strategy. But there have long been complaints about those special units. And in Memphis, residents sounded the alarm about Scorpion's aggressive tactics almost immediately. In fact, a Memphis man named Cornell Walker told the L.A. Times this weekend that days before that Scorpion team beat Tyree Nichols to death, this gentleman, Cornell Walker, was pulled over and accosted by Scorpion officers. Walker says Emmett Martin, that's the officer who is listed in the Nichols police report as the, quote, victim, that he was the man who pulled Walker from his car. The L.A. Times reports Walker said that when he and his friend, who were sitting in the friend's car, were first approached by the officers, they believed they were being targeted by young guys who wanted to steal their car. Walker said he saw Officer Emmett Martin step out of an unmarked police vehicle. I need to see your mother effing hands or I will blow your mother effing heads off, Walker said Martin screamed at him and his friend. Walker didn't realize they were police at first until he saw their badges and the word scorpion on the back of their shirts. Martin, that's the member of the scorpion unit, came over to their car and pulled Walker out, pointing a gun at his head from one foot away, Walker told the Times. The officer took him to the police car where the other officers also had guns out. Walker says he saw Martin, Justin Smith, and Demetrius Haley on the scene, and those are three of the officers charged in the Nichols case. I said, I just came over here to get a pizza, Walker said. He, as in Martin, didn't ever give a reason of why he pulled up on the car. That's Walker's car. Walker decided to call the Memphis Police Department and its Internal Affairs Unit the day after this assault. But the Internal Affairs Unit disregarded his complaint. Walker told the L.A. Times, the sergeant kept justifying it. I was pulled out at gunpoint with these people dressed as undercover cops. How am I supposed to feel? I didn't even know they were police. I felt like what happened to Tyree Nichols was preventable. If internal affairs had taken action, it could have prevented it from happening, I believe. Cities across the country have special anti-crime units, just like the Scorpion unit. In Fulton County, Georgia, the unit is also called Scorpion, though they are now considering changing that name. In New York City, they are called G-I-V-E, Give, or Gun-Involved Violence Elimination. In Baltimore, it's the Gun Trace Task Force. Tyree Nichols and his death that has horrified the nation, and it has drawn attention to the work of these special crime units. So what happens now? Joining us now is Philip Atibagoff, co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing, Equity, and Chair of uh, the African-American Studies and Professor of, the psycholo- of Psychology at Yale University. Also, Janae Nelson, president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Thank you both for joining me this evening as we talk about a complicated issue, but one that is, as we see, based on the events of the last week, ever more urgent. Um, uh, Philip, um, Professor, I just I want to start with your reaction to the story that is being reported in the L.A. Times from Cornell Walker, a man who sounds like he had 
in some ways, a similar experience, at least at the outset, with the Scorpion unit. Absolute confusion, overly aggressive response, obviously a different outcome. What is your thought when you hear the details of his story? And Philip, I'll start with you. Yeah, so the details of the story are not surprising. They're not uncommon. If you recall, during the terroristic reign of Stop, Question, and Frisk in New York, there were constant stories um, that people wouldn't believe until there was videotape of it. Um, until there was videotape of a young man who had been pulled over, stopped, questioned, and frisked three different times. Um, but these these specialty um, sort of urban crime or gun or um, frequently the gang units will also uh, show up like this. They, they have a habit of causing incredible damage individually in terms of the community and then costing taxpayers a lot, a lot of money. Folks forget that the Rampart scandal in the 1990s in LAPD, that was the crash unit, which also had an acronym that sounded like something that would be good, but was crash. Cost uh, $125 million. The gun trace task force that you just mentioned in Baltimore recently cost Baltimore residents $13 million. Um, These are responses to uh, narratives of fear that black folks are coming, bad black folks are coming to do damage to you. But what usually happens is police do damage to those black communities. They end up paying out money and yet they get celebrated as success. And all of it is in part because we only ask police to drive down the crime as if the way you drive it down is what you do afterwards, as opposed to using the data on where crime is happening to say, oh, those must be communities that don't have enough investment. They don't have enough resources so that we can give people the things they need so they don't have to cry out for crisis in crisis in the first place. And that at the root is the thing that actually reduces the crime. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Janae, to that end, what, what Philip says, there are bad black people coming to get you. I mean, this is exposed because of the race of the officers involved, the culture of violence, the culture of anti-blackness that is embedded in the structure of policing and specifically in these anti-crime units. Um, how do we tackle this problem? And what does the conversation need to begin to be inside policing units and in a city like Memphis, where there was very much a dialogue about how to better involve the community, about what criminal justice reform might look like, about what policing should look like? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And and I want to take a moment just to extend my condolences to the Nichols family this evening on the eve of the funeral of Tyree Nichols. I can only imagine the anguish and excruciating pain that they're experiencing. But this does give us an opportunity to re-examine the investments of public safety and to think about what do we actually need police for? And if you really are logical about that question, if you think about what supposedly happened this night with Tyree Nichols, an alleged traffic stop, we don't need a gang. And that's what they were, a gang of officers ripping him out of his car, tasing him, beating him, chasing him down over an alleged traffic violation. It's it's not lost on me that this happened in Memphis, which is the site of a case that uh, the Legal Defense Fund won in 1985 about fleeing felons, which established that you cannot use deadly force against a fleeing felon if that felon is posing no danger. In this case, we have a fully innocent man, as far as we know. There is nothing to suggest that Tyree Nichols was engaged in anything other than an attempt to get home safely. And instead, he was interrupted by a gang of police officers who seemed intent on wreaking havoc on this young man for no apparent reason. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, do we need police pulling over 
everyday citizens for any reason whatsoever. We don't. Do we need police returning, uh, going to people to check on wellness, armed police? Do we need police intervening when there's a mental health crisis? We don't. What we need are alternative responders, people who are trained in social services, people who are trained in behavioral science, people who can actually help, who can actually protect and serve, not harass, not ultimately in the most egregious instances, kill. Uh, to that end, Philip, the, 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 no, this unit was supposed to be dealing with, you know, homicides. I mean, this was supposed to be a violent crime unit. And the two anecdotes that I've heard from the specifically Scorpion unit in Memphis, one man who's sitting in his car with a friend getting a pizza, another man who's in his car and from the police chief is displaying no outward probable cause for the police to not only come at him, but to ultimately uh, kill him, to beat him, to do what they did that we saw well-documented on the body cam footage. So, like, what is happening that these specialized units believe they can take— the, first of all, they have the support of local law enforcement. I mean, there's a reason we played that sound from the mayor and from the police chief. This was seen as a successful model for Memphis. Why, why were—what what strategies were they employing, and why were they seen as successful? It, you say, and I think rightly so— it is not a surprise that they were targeting innocent people like this. This is something that is documented, if not if not at the center of the national media spotlight. Surely the higher ups in law enforcement had to know that this was not a, a, a unit without blemish. Oh, I'm sure that they did. Um, I'm sure that the I mean, as we've said, um, residents were absolutely saying, hey, we've had problems here from almost the jump of the unit. But part of the sort of giveaway is in the way the mayor touted the success. Numbers of arrests, numbers of felonies. We're evaluating law enforcement, but for the things that they can get away with charging people for, right? Not numbers of convictions, not numbers of folks who are in less crisis, not the metrics of actual safety, the metrics of punishment. And so long as all we've got are metrics of punishment, then for sure, law enforcement is going to look like a huge success. But you got right to the core of one of the issues here. If the real reason to have a scorpion unit, and by the way, I don't care what the acronym is, if you have as a poisonous predator yes. as the name for the thing you're using state dollars for, don't think that's going to end up with a lot of safety going on, right? Wasn't it the scorpion who, who stabbed the, the frog and they all drowned in the river in the first place? Um, but if you've got um, a, a scorpion unit whose job it is to deal with the most violent crime, the murder spike that we saw during the height of the pandemic— there is no justification for low-level traffic enforcement. But the reason they're doing it in those neighborhoods is they know if they do essentially a dragnet through the neighborhood, they're going to get enough people with enough stuff in the car, they can charge them, the mayor can be proud of those numbers, mm -hmm. and the community can feel like they're being kept safe. It's a PR vicious cycle. So until we start actually asking questions about what does safety mean, and exactly as Janae says, and exactly as folks in Oakland have been saying, and folks in Chicago have been saying, and Philly have been saying, we got to use police for less for the things we could possibly train them for. And by the way, get them out of the things that they themselves have said they want out of, out of mental health, out of unhoused folks, and for sure, out of low-level traffic, which is both dangerous for the officer and in this case, deadly for one motorist. Can I just ask you that part of when we talk about what safety means, that's there's a generational divide on this. Is there not, Philip? I mean, especially in Memphis, the Atlantic has some great reporting on this. Older residents of some of these communities want to see a strong police presence. The younger younger members of these communities are, are kind of woke to this idea, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, 
guns at all, but just they are aware of the, the sort of systemic abuses in the criminal justice system and in law enforcement. And they're much more wary of a heavy police presence or even a police presence in their neighborhoods, given their their, you know, the history here. I mean, it's a, it seems like it's it's more complicated than just, you know, this is what safety means to this community, because that seems like a matter of debate. Am I overstating that? No, so I, I would add complication to your complication. Um, for sure, the polling says that, but I'm not sure the polling gets at the right question. Um, the reason why you have older black folks, and I'm now in, into that demographic now, um, who will say, yes, we want a, a police presence, is because not only have they been around for the slogan of defund the police, but they lived through defund the education system and defund mental health hospitals and defund uh, public safety uh, that comes in the form of <clears throat> uh, drug uh, issues and unhoused uh, uh, resources. They've been defunded so that the only thing they've got left that gets any municipal dollars are the police. Yeah. So if you take the police away, what they're saying is you have taken away literally everything and we have no faith that once you've taken money away, you will give it back in any form to these communities. They have lived through a kind of terrorism of disinvestment in their communities. So during the height of the 1980s, when we saw and 1990s, when we saw a huge investment in law enforcement from what counts as the political left in this country, black folks weren't only saying we want tougher punishment for these folks who are taking over the streets. They were also saying, and we would love if you would invest in the communities so we don't have to call out in crisis in the first place. We mostly don't tell that history. That message was mostly lost on politicians who were scared of talking about it. And then we are now at a point where we say, well, there, there must be a generational divide. There is in the experience of disinvestment. Younger mm -hmm. generations grew up amidst this disinvestment, and older generations, like me, have watched it unfold. So folks are more scared to give up any money that's coming into those communities at all. That makes absolute sense. Janae, I got to ask you, you know, we, it's not just obviously Memphis that has a Scorpion unit. There are similar units in New York City. They, they just sort of revamped theirs. It's called Give, which sounds nice. Uh, there's one in Georgia. There's Fulton County. There's Baltimore. I mean, do you think the death of Tyree Nichols is going to prompt a real soul searching about the necessity of thing, these things? Or do you think each city sort of tells itself a different story about what's happening? Well, it absolutely should. And it's quite disheartening to hear that Governor Hochul in New York is considering expanding these types of units in the state. That is absolutely the wrong thing to do. That is the wrong direction to go in. We should be reducing the footprint of police in our society overall, not expanding them and certainly not funding and deputizing these specialized units that operate outside the bounds of general oversight and authority that um most police units and police, regular police officers uh, have to adhere to. These units are invited to infiltrate communities in ways that are extraordinarily dangerous to them and those people. And I will say that what's particularly uh, pernicious about these specialized units is that they are deployed in the most under-resourced communities yes. as Phil just said, and ones that are relatively defensive because of that, that have the least amount of uh, capacity and ability to report the injustices that they experience, to rally the resources to push back against this violence and against this terrorism visited upon them by the state. And that makes it easy, right? You can get an easy win against a vulnerable community. If you were to take that same specialized unit and bring it to a different community, a more resourced and, and wealthy community, you would never see the same results that you see here. Those units would be disbanded immediately. 
There, you only see them in the communities that are already suffering and already vulnerable. And we have to examine this predatory policing that is, at, at the end of the day, the foundation of our policing system overall. Yeah, I will say cell phone footage and body cam footage are not substitutes for the resources these communities need to report injustices, right? We may know about Tyree Nichols because of body cam footage, but that's not a substitute for what should actually happen in the community to prevent this from ever happening again. Philip Atiba Goff, co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity, and Janae Nelson, president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Thank you both for your time tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. We have much more ahead tonight. I will be joined live on set by one of the senior investigators who served on the January 6th committee. What he has to say about the investigation's findings, that is coming up. But next, George Santos really hopes everyone will just forget that he's lied about basically everything. And so does Kevin McCarthy. Pod Save America's Dan Pfeiffer will join me to discuss. Stick around. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Doesn't it further wear down credibility when you put someone who's under state, local, federal, and international investigation as a representative of Are your you party on committees? I'm talking about George no, Santos. I, Congress is broken. And I think, I think your listeners or viewers should understand what proxy voting was because it never took place in Congress But I'm asking before. you about George Santos. I know you asked me a question. Let me because ask you. Because you could put it to a vote. You asked me a question. Ask. I'd appreciate it if you let me answer. What I'm trying to do is change some of these committees as well. Like the Intel Committee is different than so any other committee. So you're just not going to answer the question I asked. Well, no. I, no, you don't get to question whether I answer it. You asked a question. I'm trying to get you I don't you think you've that. said the name George Santos like once. <laughs> well, no, but talking, you know what? I just, you're talking about proxy but, but, voting. No, no, no. And other Never speak his name. Do not speak his name. That was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy attempting to bluster his way through a question about Republican congressman and serial fabulist George Santos. Interviews like that may be why we got the news today that George Santos is taking a step back. After a private meeting with Speaker McCarthy last night, Congressman Santos announced today that he would temporarily recuse himself from his committee assignments while continuing to resist calls for his resignation. That decision comes after we learned this weekend that the FBI has officially asked the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission, not to take any actions regarding Santos's alleged campaign finance violations, not because they think George Santos is innocent, but because the FBI has opened its own criminal investigation into George Santos. Today, we learned that Santos's campaign treasurer officially resigned her position last week. Now, right around the time of that resignation, Santos's campaign filed paperwork to 
hire a new person as campaign treasurer, a person who later said he also did not want that job and never authorized anyone to file that paperwork on his behalf. So, yes, not eager to be filling that particular position. Today, Congressman Santos sat down for his second televised interview since these scandals broke. His first televised interview did not go so well when Fox News, as in the Fox News, grilled Santos over his numerous lies. This time, George Santos waded into even friendlier and fringier waters over at uh, the right-wing One America News Network, where he was not asked about any of his falsehoods, but things still managed to get sort of awkward. History has shown that the American people can pretty much forgive anything. But that starts with a sincere apology normally, a lot of remorse shown. Prevailing opinion is you have not yet shown that. You know, I I don't know what you mean by that. I do. None of this is going very well for George Santos. In fact, all of it is incredibly embarrassing for George Santos and the party that he is a part of, the GOP. So why is George Santos still in Congress? Well, George Santos is still in Congress because Kevin McCarthy holds a speaker's gavel by only five votes. He needs every single one of them, including George Santos's. With that reality in mind, McCarthy is turning a blind eye to the most deceptive members of his party and also paying heed to the most nihilistic ones, which is why Speaker McCarthy is now allowing the Republican House to effectively take the nation's economy hostage in a standoff over the debt ceiling. He is literally looking over the edge to financial catastrophe and showing no indication that he is willing to turn his caucus back. Tomorrow, Speaker McCarthy is set to meet with President Biden to discuss the debt ceiling, though President Biden has already said he refuses to let Republicans use the debt ceiling as a bargaining chip. Ahead of that meeting, Biden has one one message and one message alone for the embattled Republican majority leader. Show me your budget and I will show you mine. Joining us now is Dan Pfeiffer, former senior advisor, former senior White House advisor to President Obama and co-host of the wildly successful Pod Save America. Dan, (laughs) thank you for being here, my friend. I really have, for those of you who have not read your wonderful, illuminating posts on Substack, I I highly recommend them. But one of the things that's so illuminating is your comparison, well, the lessons learned between the last time a Democratic Mm -hmm. White House had to negotiate with Republican hostage takers. If you could sort of paraphrase, summarize the wisdom that you gleaned between 2011 and 2013 as a member of the Obama administration. Absolutely, Alex. Thanks for having me. Back in 2011, the Tea Party Republicans had just taken over, and they, just like Kevin McCarthy and George Santos and this group, said that they were not going to raise the debt limit without some extracting some concessions from the president around spending or deficits like then, like now, they were pretty vague about what they wanted, but they wanted a big fight. And separate from that, Speaker Boehner came to President Obama and said, what if we just tried to come to a big agreement where we would do some long-term deficit reduction and we could do some things in the short term to help the economy grow during the Great Recession? President Obama took him up on that, you know, on that, you take a gamble to have that conversation with him, had that conversation. It fell apart and the country came so close to defaulting that the economy took a massive hit. People lost their jobs. Growth got hurt and we suffered our first ever default or first ever downgrade in our credit rating. Huge disaster. And the lesson the president and then Vice President Biden took from that is you cannot have a fair 
good negotiation with a gun to your head. And that's exactly what the debt limit is. It is a gun to your head. It is economic uh, terrorism, legislative terrorism. It is deeply dangerous. I mean, the other part of it is, who are you going to negotiate with? First of all, you're talking about a group of people that have no idea what they want, although they're putting Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security on the table. But they have no interlocutor, right? Like, Kevin McCarthy holds the Speaker's gavel by one vote. I mean, effectively, a vote of no confidence gets him out of there. It's not officially called a vote of no confidence, but that's what I'm going to call it. if you're Biden in this, I mean, there's the lessons from the Obama administration. But there's also the reality of like, who could he even negotiate with? So what does he do? What does he do in this instance? I mean, can do you think he can actively stake out a position where it's like, I am not going to talk to you about this? Because Democrats already, like Joe Manchin, are saying, we got to be reasonable. That's not how he sounds, but you know what I mean. That's that's kind of how he sounds. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he absolutely can and has to take the position. You're exactly right. Let's just hypothetically say, and this is going to stretch the bounds of credulity, but that Kevin McCarthy was a serious, substantive person of good faith with whom President Biden could strike a deal. Even if they had that deal, there is no evidence that Kevin McCarthy could deliver the votes for that deal. He'd be more likely to lose his speakership than be able to get that deal on the floor of the House and pass. So even if negotiation was not a terrible idea, which I think it is, it wouldn't matter because there is nothing, no one to negotiate with, and they have no idea what they want to negotiate about. And so what here's the simple message that the president has done. It was President Obama's message in 2013 when the Republicans tried this trick again, which is raising the debt limit is Congress's job. It has nothing to do with spending. It has nothing to do with deficits. It is simply a procedural vote to allow the Treasury Department to pay the bills that Congress has already incurred. If you want to have a big negotiation or a big fight over the budget bill, the spending bills are going to come due later this summer, let's do that. But let's take the danger of default of doing huge damage in this economy to undoing all of the progress we've made since the pandemic by allowing, by putting the risk of default. So take that aside, then we'll have the conversation. You do your job and you are welcome to come down here and have a meeting with me. We can try to hammer something out. Can I just highlight the fact also, I mean, aside, setting aside the actual negotiations, the fact that Republicans are openly saying, maybe it's all about trimming or just slashing the social safety net at a moment when even President Trump realizes that it's politically suicidal. And I must highlight for those who do not know, the RNC is telling that the GOP that they need to double down on pushing restrictive abortion bans in order to win in 2024. This party and the elders, if there are any, that are actually sailing the ship with their hands on the captain's wheel, is living, it seems, in a parallel universe. I mean, just political reality would would tell you, don't say slashing Medicare and Social Security and pushing restrictive abortion bans out loud in the year 2023. How do do you think they are thinking about, I mean, I I truly don't understand what the logic is behind all of this. They're they're not thinking this ties to what you said about George Sanchez to begin with. Their only existence is not some ideological agenda or some policy preference. It's to own the lips. And this is the ultimate example of owning lips is try to have this big fight to win something. They don't even know what they want to win. Is it Social Security and Medicare cuts? Is it defense cuts? Is it an increase in defense spending? Is it defunding salmon like Jim Jordan tweeted about the other day? They have no idea. But there is a principle here, which is you cannot allow one half of one branch of Congress to use the threat of a global financial crisis to extract policy concessions that they cannot get through the normal electoral process. 
They did not win a, a governing majority. They don't have the House and the Senate. They don't have a veto-proof majority. And so what this so if President Biden were to negotiate with them and were to come to some sort of concession to reward this behavior, and maybe they get cuts in the budget or cuts to education or whatever it is that makes them happy, what happens the next time? Is it a federal abortion ban? Is it book bans? Is it undoing the the law that was just passed preserving marriage equality and interracial marriage? You can't allow that to happen. There is a normal legislative process. This is not part of it. I think President Biden's exactly right. In all the polling shows, he is on the has the most political high ground possible for this fight. This is not the normal legislative process. And by the way, this is not normal. Period. Dan Pfeiffer, former senior White House advisor to President Obama and co-host of Pod Save America. It's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Still ahead this hour, the latest from Ron DeSantis' Florida, where a new battle has emerged in the conservative culture wars. That is next. Stay with us. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. In the fall of 1964, a small college in Sarasota, Florida, opened its doors to its very first class of 100 students. It was named New College, and a big part of the school's mission was to be inclusive by adopting an open admissions program that wouldn't discriminate based on race, creed, national origin, or cultural status. It was a novelty in a state that was once part of the slave-owning Confederacy. Today, New College of Florida ranks number three in the Princeton Review of public colleges and universities that make an impact in the community. The school only has about 700 students, many of whom identify as non-heterosexual. In fact, that's one of the specifically inclusive things about the college. Students get to decide their gender identity without judgment in the state of Florida. You probably see where this is going. New College of Florida has become the new target of Governor Ron DeSantis and his culture war. He thinks that because the school is funded by state taxpayers, the school ought to have a conservative identity, a conservative Christian identity, which is not what it has had or has ever had. And to carry out this mission, Governor DeSantis has appointed six new members to the new college's board of trustees, including Christopher Rufo, a conservative activist who has led the battle against critical race theory in public schools across the U.S., and Matthew Spaulding, the dean of Hillsdale College, a conservative Christian school that is serving as a model for DeSantis's plan to take over higher education in the state of Florida. 
These men, along with four others of DeSantis's picks, now make up the majority of the board of New College, and they are not wasting any time. This afternoon, they held their very first official meeting. But before it even started, the end game was clear. Uh, the legislature has agreed to authorize immediately $15 million for New College for recruiting new faculty and for scholarships uh, for students. And so you're going to have a situation where you're going to be able to go out, recruit people to come, say, hey, here's the mission. Here's what we're looking to do. I mean, you have people asking, how do I apply? That money, the $15 million the governor was talking about, that is to hire new faculty for new college. In that same event, Governor DeSantis announced new reforms for higher education in Florida, ones that will eliminate diversity, equity and inclusion and critical race theory and make sure that, quote, core courses are rooted in Western tradition. Sitting next to Governor DeSantis was Christopher Rufo, who just hours later carried out the governor's mandate by immediately calling for the abolition of the new college office for outreach and inclusive excellence. Rufo claims that diversity divides people. One of the items that we discussed, that I discussed today with Governor DeSantis and with legislators present is that diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, which sounds great, but in practice uh, divides people and offers separate judgments on the basis of race and identity. My opinion does matter, actually, unfortunately for you. My opinion does matter, unfortunately for you. Christopher Rufo is right. He is now part of a conservative majority taking over New College of Florida. And while there is resistance in the form of rallies and in protests, Rufo and his conservative cohort now have the power to make immediate change. And their first order of business today, hours ago, was to fire New College's president and replace her with former Florida Education Secretary Richard Corcoran, a DeSantis ally and an anti-CRT crusader. The takeover has begun. We will be right back. The January 6th committee's investigators were split into teams by color. And the red team investigated the people who planned and attended the attack on the Capitol. One of those senior investigators on the red team, James Sasso, who worked on the final report, is now sounding the alarm, saying that the January 6th attack was not just an insurrection to keep Trump in power. It was an attack on democracy as a whole. This is a quote from his latest op-ed. It wasn't just that they wanted to contest a a supposedly stolen election, as Trump called them to do. They wanted to punish the judges, the members of Congress, and law enforcement agencies, the so-called political elites, who had discredited Trump's claims. Now, we have seen that kind of violence beyond January 6th. We've seen it play out across the country. Yesterday in New Mexico, a grand jury indicted a failed Republican state candidate for targeting and shooting the homes of several Democratic officials. Last week, California officials released the body cam footage of the brutal attack on Paul Pelosi, the husband of the former Speaker of the House, that attack by an extremist and a believer in the big lie. Over the summer, a man who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, he shot at an FBI field office in Ohio. There are countless other examples. 
January 6th was not an isolated incident. It was a symptom of a much broader and deeply entrenched problem in the United States. Joining me now is James Sasso, that he served as a senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee and worked on drafting its initial report. Mr. Sasso, thank you for being here on set. Thank you so much for having me. And continuing a really important part of the conversation, right? It obviously didn't just end on the steps of the Capitol or inside the Capitol that day and continues on. The first thing I want to just ask because you were involved in the drafting of this, you you mentioned this in your op-ed. Do you think that the focus of the report, and generally speaking with the committee's work, was too much on the actions of the former president and not enough about the systemic problems that have taken root in American society? So uh, I think we were very successful in how we framed the report to focus on the former president. When you think about just the amount of resources we had, the limited amount of time we had, Uh, thinking even in terms of what the American public is willing to listen to and understand, it'd be very hard to tell a 50-year story, (laughs) right, about how uh, the rioters' identities were challenged, how they fell out of favor, and how they uh, learned to distrust the federal government. Yeah. But what we really needed to do was to focus on the immediate threat that President Trump uh, really brought to light and what he did by inciting the riot. Uh, And so I think it was right to focus on him. And it was a story that was very powerful with the American public. It's not that we ignored all of these other topics in any sense of the word. You know, in our investigation, we asked witnesses, we would ask the defendants we were talking to, you know, what brought you here and get into more than just President Trump. So it is there in our documents, in our materials, and even in our report, we, you know, touch on these topics. But we thought it was very important to focus on the focus president. on the president's focus immediate on, threat on the, on the thing that is in our immediate uh, front view mirror. But I, I got to ask you: use the you use the time frame fifty years. It would be hard to write a report tracing the last fifty years, which suggests that this has been brewing for some time. And I, you know, I want to get into what you learned talking to these people who were so animated by the struggle that they felt the need to foment revolution, right? You mentioned disinformation, sort of, I mean, I'm not going to say, I mean, it sounds like it's slightly minimized in this op-ed, and I want to follow up on that. You say, a few of the defendants we interviewed complained of being misled by social media, which seems to have pushed them into conspiracy theory rabbit holes like QAnon. That doesn't sound like the the sort of poison of misinformation was the gateway drug to the insurrection. How 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 important is it to combat that? What else did you see as leading them to this this insurrection? Well, it's I hope I wasn't minimizing it because it is incredibly important that we do something about the way that our citizens uh, consume information and where that information is coming from. But I think we have to think backwards a little further. Mm -hmm. So this is why I said 50 years, and it comes out of a lot of my research when I was writing my dissertation. You can only think of people being susceptible to these kinds of thoughts, to QAnon. I mean, we have to wonder why so many people were willing to listen to President Trump's big lie in 2020, but also to all the lies he was telling earlier than that and all of the horrible rhetoric. And you have to, why are people, you know, getting on board with that? What about their identity? What about their political views leads them to be susceptible to QAnon. Mm -hmm. So that is the 50 years I was talking about. But yes, like as an immediate problem, now that we have people who are willing to listen to that information and believe it over, you know, the institutions of government and the institutions of education, media being an institution. 
So this distrust and how uh, all the riders felt, it goes further. You know, and deeper. And deeper. And we, when we talked to uh, a lot of the defendants, they would have similar talk tracks about, well, you know, I wasn't that political, but the government really wasn't there for me. It was for other people. And those are what I noted as like, the breakdown in terms of the government being responsive to right. people's needs. Where did racial animus fit in all of this? Oh, that's uh, that's the next part. We, you know, we would hear about BLM as almost equated to a, a terrorist organization that wanted to burn down cities, and it's you know it's not. And at the same time, a lot of the defendants were talking about how they wanted government to work for everybody, and it was impossible for them to understand that the Black Lives Matter movement had those same ideals behind it. And, you know, that's a lot of the racial animus that exists. And that also is tied into the distrust of the federal government that I mentioned. There's a lot of uh, what we call in political science layered reasoning here. So you can think of people seeing the federal government work for rich people rather than the ordinary Americans. That's one level that does it. For small businesses, it could be the corporations getting big tax cuts. For a lot of white Americans who felt left behind in the 60s and 70s, it is their view that the government turned to benefiting the elites. You know, well, the elites and you know, black and brown people from time to time. So like these problems that they see layered on top of each other led them susceptible to a lot of uh, political rhetoric that sort of hijacked those anxieties and, and those emotions and those emotions. James Sasso, senior investigative counsel on the January 6th committee. It's really important work that you did and it's all in the report itself. <laughs> so comb through it. Thank you for your time Please tonight. That is it for us. We will see you again tomorrow. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.